Well, it's exciting for me to get back into the book of Luke again, and um, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, and we're looking at uh, Luke chapter 9 verses 51 to 56, Luke chapter 9 verse 51 to 56. I think this passage is very apt for us in the modern days that we live now with uh, a lot of the opposition that we as churches face and in the community, how do we respond to that opposition? It's really important to know how to respond correctly. Otherwise, we put a block there for the gospel. And so as we look at this passage, think not just in your own life on how you respond when people come against you and the message you might have, but also as a church, how do we respond to our community and what they say to us. So Luke chapter 9 verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for Jesus to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers before his face and as they went they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now tell me, how do you respond to rejection? Teenagers, how do you respond to rejection? When someone uh, comes against you and what you've just said, how do you respond to that? I know what a normal gut reaction is. It's like my dog died. Isn't it? And when people come against you and your opinions, what is your gut reaction? Come on, don't be so holy now. We get angry, don't we? That's our gut reaction. Now, what about a just cause? Mothers, you've made a beautiful meal for your family. And it's like you could have put wheat picks in front of it. And you feel rejected. How do you react? Dads, you've done the best for the boss. You've put your heart and soul into that bit of work he asks you to do and it's as if doesn't matter. And you feel, what? what's it worth? And you actually get angry. And you're elderly, or those older than me, um, you know, when you've got a lot of time and people ask you to do volunteer service and you hold out that hospice tin and people walk by and they kind of look you straight in the eye and they, you know they've got loads of money because you can see it. But they don't put a cent in to that tin. How do you react when you're there for a good cause? You also kind of get a bit angry. See, it's our natural reaction. And as Christians, when you present the gospel message to someone you love dearly or a friend that you've been trying to reach for a long time and all you get in return is rubbish. I can't believe that stuff. And what's your natural gut reaction? Come on, say it. Turn or burn. 
You've said it. Turn or burn. Haven't you? Oh, okay. Me. Um, and even as a church and as individuals who make up this church and as the church in New Zealand, when these society issues cut across the way we hold to our values, when they seem to deliberately cut into what we stand for as Christians, the way we discipline our children, when laws change, come about, about even Bible in schools, which we think is a worthy cause, which gay, the gay marriage bill comes up and we think this is now really cutting across what we hold dear to, what, how do we respond with anger? You see, people see our response as the church. They see our response as a bigoted one, as an unloving one, as rednecks. You are discriminating against us. You are just fundamentalists. And the church becomes irrelevant. And you see, we've got to ask ourselves, are any of these accusations coming against us as the church or as believers, are they relevant? Are they relevant? And here's the second question. Do we still reflect the heart of the gospel while proclaiming the message of the gospel? Do you get the difference there? Do we show the heart of the gospel while we are proclaiming the gospel message? And I'm going to elaborate on that. You see, Luke in this account gives us an account of when the the disciples were tested in this very specific area of rejection. And they failed. And it's the same uh, lesson that Jesus wants to teach you and I today as we are believers in our society. And so let's look at verse 51 of chapter 9. It says, Now it came to pass that when the time had come for Jesus to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now there's a shift in emphasis here. When you see that little phrase in Scripture, now it came to pass, there's a shift in emphasis. There's a change about to happen. And it starts in this humble little verse, right in the middle of a seeming chapter, there's the shift in emphasis. And the narrative now describes Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Up to now, he'd been in Galilee. Galilee had been the center of his ministry. It had been where all these activities had mainly happened. Now, the focus is going to shift to Jerusalem, with all the events leading up to what would happen in Jerusalem itself. That would now become the focus of what Luke records. And so, why does Luke record this? Because there's a shift in Jesus' focus too. Jesus had up to now been equipping his disciples for the work that would happen when he was no longer around. But now Jesus starts to focus on preparing them for his death, his resurrection and his ascension from this earth. He starts to prepare them. And so Luke in his function as wanting to remember chapter 1 verse 3, giving an orderly account of Jesus' activities, Luke now records the shift in Jesus' emphasis in Jesus' activities. And so we see this phrase, when the days were approaching, or in your Bible it might say, when the days were being fulfilled for His ascension. You see, 
During this time, Jesus was no longer receiving a favorable reception either to his person or to his message from the people. But that is not the main reason why he now turns his face towards Jerusalem. There's a second phrase here. The days were approaching. This is a very specific term which was a term of fulfillment. The the time had now come for the fulfillment of God's plan. For the progressive fulfillment of what God had planned, not just for Jesus but for mankind. There was now another step being put in place. And Jesus knew that the approaching goal was not just his death, and his resurrection, which was critically important to, for the salvation of mankind and for you and I, Jesus knew that was coming, but his ascension was coming for him. And in a way, Jesus looks at everything that's about to happen and he sees the ascension in that. Why? You see, because in that moment of time, after completing what he had been sent to earth for, he would again be glorified he would again be united with his Father with the glory he had with God before the world existed, says John chapter 17 verse 5. And so this dip that is coming in Jesus' experience which lies just ahead of him, his death, the resurrection and all this, that was just part of the ascension. Part of him being able to be glorified and to be back with his father. And so he reveals to us here a yearning for a return to his father. And it will all take place at this city, Jerusalem. And so we see Jesus' reaction. We have this very specific Hebrew idiom that's used here. He set his face towards Jerusalem. It's not just words chosen. It's a very specific phrase used. He set his face And some of the old Bibles might say, he set his face as flint. Now, we don't even know what flint is anymore. But it's a very hard rock, which they use to cut other rocks. He set his face as flint. There was a fixed purpose now about Jesus in the face of difficulty and danger. He knew full well what was ahead of him. He knew about the betrayal. He knew about the unjust trial. He knew about the mockery and the whipping and the crown of thorns that lay ahead for him in the very near future. He knew about the spitting that would happen onto his person, about those nails that would be driven through his hands and his feet. He knew about that spear which would be pushed into his sides. He knew about the agony of the cross. He knew about the separation from his father. That was the greatest one for him. The tasting of death for the first time. Think of that. And for the last time. He knew. And yet Jesus' heart was set on paying the price for your redemption and for mine. He was full of tender love for sinners like you and like me. And when he saw his death and the sufferings approaching, he looked beyond them to what? To the events of glory that would follow. He looked upon it as a time when he would be taken up into glory. It was all one picture for Jesus. I am now going to be taken up into glory. And yes, all this still lay ahead of him. And so, says Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. In brackets, you know. 
isn't it such a stark contrast to the way we respond to situations which come up against us? How quickly you and I draw back from and we turn our faces away from Jesus' service when the going gets a little tough. We too should look through our present day trials and we should look to the glory that is to come, to the eternal perspective that we have. That's what we should do. You know, and as I spoke to Val in the last days, while we could still speak to her, she had that perspective. Dear old Val, she could only whisper in my ear, but she had that perspective. Calvin, my body is not catching up with me. I want to be with the Lord. She had an eternal perspective, you see. And when you and I go through hard times, when the going gets tough, we should have that perspective too. When the going gets tough, the tough should what? Keep looking to glory. We should keep looking to glory. That's the perspective Jesus had. Now we turn to his disciples. A very different matter. A bit like you and me, by the way. Verses 52 to 54. So Jesus sends his messengers before him, that's the disciples, and to the Samaritan village. Interestingly, we're going to speak about that now. And they entered this village of Samaritans to prepare for Jesus. But the Samaritans wouldn't receive Jesus. And so the disciples, especially James and John, had this reaction, Lord, do you want us to call fire down on them? Let's look a little bit at these Samaritans. We've talked about Samaritans before as we've looked through the book of Luke, but they were descendants of Jewish mixed marriages from the days when they were still in captivity. They were rivals to the Jewish nation when it came to religious activity. They had developed their own form of worship. It was a bit of a hybrid between Judaism and paganism put together. The Samaritans had their own temple of worship and it was set up at Mount Gerizim. And it was opposed to the temple in Jerusalem. And the controversy between them was so hot and this is where this whole picture comes in here, that the Jews would have no dealings with the Samaritans. They saw them as lower than dogs. In our terms, lower than snakes spit on the seabed. They had no time for Samaritans. And vice versa, Samaritans hated the Jews. And, and these Samaritans were considered unclean by Jews. And they were hated so much that many Jewish travellers when they were coming from Galilee down to Jerusalem, or actually up, okay, travelling up geographically but down on a map, right, get with me. When they were travelling, a journey of 190 kilometres, they could have gone 50 kilometres shorter if they cut through some area. Now, when you're walking, 50 kilometres is a long way. But instead of going that way, they would walk around another 50 k just so that they wouldn't go through the Samaritan territory. Now, that's a bit of hatred. That was the theory. But you and I are very much like a lot of these Jewish people. They were very pragmatic as well. And so, um, they would take a shortcut through the Samaritan and they would endure it. Like holding a filthy rag out this way. That on a, we'll go through Samaria. And we'll even live there. We'll go for a night and use it as a stopover. And we'll just endure it. And the Samaritans, 
endured it too because they made money. And so they had these this love-hate relationship. Love for the money, hate for the Jews coming through their territory. And so when Jesus sends his messengers ahead of him to prepare a place for him, they would have been a bit surprised but also not because in Jesus' character he always seemed to do this. He always seemed to go where others wouldn't go. And so, yeah, okay, he wants us to go and stay in the Samaritan territory. That's Jesus. And so they went ahead and they went to prepare for Jesus to stay over. But Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He could have walked another 50 kilometers further. He wanted to, to teach his disciples another lesson that they would need for when he was no longer around and when they would face people who rejected their message. We see here that the Samaritans refused to have Jesus in their territory. Now that was unusual because usually they liked money, right? But in Jesus, there was a difference. Why? Because Jesus was known in that whole region for being a celebrated teacher. They knew that he claimed to be the Messiah. And they themselves were also looking for the Messiah. But they didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And by him um, going up to and setting his face to traveling up to Jerusalem, what he was in effect saying was, I reject Mount Gerizim and I reject your version of the true religion because these Samaritans knew that even the Jewish leaders hated Jesus and yet he still stuck to their religion. And that must mean that he still rejects ours by not coming to join us at Mount Gerizim. And so they refused to have Jesus in their area. They were in fact incensed and they denied him. And then we come to the beloved disciples' response. And bless Peter, it wasn't him this time. Usually it's Peter. But it wasn't Peter. Very surprisingly, it was James and John. Alright? The sons of Zebedee. And yes, they were called the sons of thunder for a very good reason. And here it comes out. And this was, by the way, the very same John who was gentle John in the end when Jesus had worked on him. This was the one who wrote so much of our gospel. And he wrote what about? Love for one another. This was the same John who now says these words. And James, the one who later willingly drank of his Lord's bitter cup when he was killed by Herod with the sword. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 12. These two disciples, sons of Zebedee, we do not want Jesus in our territory. And they say to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down on them as with Elijah? Now that they just think up these clever words? Were they just angry and said these words? No, there was actually a religious precedent that had been set hundreds of years before in this very same Sumerian territory. And that had been set by King Ahaziah in 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. You can read about this. King Ahaziah of Samaria inquired from his god, Beelzebub, instead of the true God of Israel, whether he would recover from his fall, which he had had through his bedchamber. You see, this king had been on his roof chamber, and he had fallen through the roof in a weak spot into the room below, and he somehow must have hurt his back. And so he sends to his, a message to his God, Beelzebub, saying, will I recover? 
And God judged him for that because he was not recognizing that God was the true God in Israel. And so God sends his prophet Elijah down to this king. And the king sends 50 soldiers up to Elijah to say, come here and listen to me. Is your God going to save me or not? And what happens? Elijah calls down fire on these 50 soldiers and it burns them up. You might think, hmm, a bit overkill. That's a good word, place. But no, what is he doing? God was judging the nation because they were not recognizing him in Israel. And so what does the king do? Very stupidly, he sends 50 more soldiers. And what, that, what happens to them? Same thing. Elijah calls down fire and they are consumed. And what does the king do as they do? They send more pawns. And so 50 more soldiers. And this time the captain is clever and he learnt. And he said, Elijah, please, I know what's going to come in. Please save us. And so Elijah spares their life. And so the precedent had been set in this very same territory of Samaria. And these disciples would have known this because they knew the Old Testament history, right? And so they come in and hear these very same Samarians are again denying the Lord. And so they say, Lord, Elijah did it. Shall we call down fire and burn them? I'm sure they wanted to see this. They've rejected you, Lord. There's a just cause. You see, they had a lot of zeal for Christ, but their methods weren't quite what they should have been. And so Jesus heals to them. Now, before we kind of point the finger at the disciples, let's just stop there in brackets again and turn to our own reactions, right? I need to tell others about God, but when I do, they say, rubbish. What's my gut reaction? Burn them, Lord. No. You see, our commitment to Jesus is seen by the world as a blind, arrogant exclusivism. And when they express that to us, what is our reaction to them? Anger. When the church, church expresses concern for the moral character of our culture, it's seen by the, the society as a dogmatic attempt to control other people. And when they tell us that, our reaction is, what? I write away and I'm angry. Legislation changes. And we Christians are labelled as bigots in the media, on the radio, on TV. Bigots and discriminators against the gay community. And what's our reaction? May they die in their sin. And by the way, I can prove it from scripture. Lord, strike them. You see, we justify ourselves so quickly from Scripture. And yes, we are right in what we are thinking because God clearly states that homosexuality, and I'm going on that one now, homosexuality is sin as is lying, stealing, divorce, coveting and murder, by the way. And so we are right to take a stand against it as Christians. We should. But do we have the right attitude? Do we have the right attitude? You see, here's a follow-up question. Does God hate the sinners as much as he hates their sin? No, definitely no. You see, Jesus said, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
So yes, God hates all sin, but He loves all sinners. And that's the message that has come across from us to the unbelieving world and to these people who think that we are bigots. God hates the sin, but He hates, He loves the sinner. And He sent His only Son to die for all sinners who would turn to Him in repentance and receive His grace, His forgiveness and His mercy as you and I did once. That's the message that must come across from us. Not just in our message, but in our attitudes. So what is our attitude to be when people come up against us? Let's see what Jesus does in verses 55 and 56. But Jesus turned and rebuked his disciples and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So Jesus rebukes his disciples for their wrong attitude. And so he rebukes you and I too this morning if we have the wrong attitudes towards people and their sin. You see, when he says to them, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of, in the Old Testament dispensation, God used Elijah to bring judgment on an evil king. And rightly so, because they were dishonoring to the Lord. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, and the whole new dispensation of grace that he brought with him, God wanted to show his grace clearly at work among men. And so servants of God, as servants of God, we are not to have a spirit of vengeance. We are not to have a pride and bitterness under the pretense of zeal for our master. But we are to have a spirit of humility. We are to have a love for people, even people who are in error and sinning. Didn't Jesus teach his disciples, love your enemies, bless them that curse you? That's the attitude we have to have. And so Jesus says to his disciples, verse 56, So learn from me, the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. You want to burn them, I've come to save them, says the Lord. And instead of calling down fire from heaven, why don't you rather call down grace from heaven? on these people who need me, on those who oppose me and my message. You see, Jesus ushered in peace on earth and goodwill towards men. That's why he came. And instead of curses and anger, he was saying to his disciples, present them with love and the message of the gospel by which they can be saved. So what's the so what question for us? That was Jesus and his disciples. How does that apply to you and I this, this, after, this morning, sorry, in 2014? It's a very valid, it's a very real message for us as believers and as a collective church in our society. Because non-Christians often describe Christians as coming across condemningly, not just in our message, but also in the way we do it. Now I can hear a burning question in you. So does that mean I must change my message? No. First point of application here this morning to you is don't change the message. Don't change the message. It's not yours to change. God has given us a very specific message that we are to take to the nations. And God's attitude towards sin and evil has not changed. Even though society gets more tolerant and more permissive. Sin 
is sin is sin to the Lord. He does not change. His attitude does not change towards sin. He is still as much a holy God as when He started and He's been from everlasting to everlasting a holy God. And so we can't water down the message. We can't. And even though some in even our dear Baptist Union have watered down the message to suit the hearers, we cannot do that. It is not our message to water down. And just because society produces a marriage amendment and a marriage uh, uh, amendment act and a gay marriage bill does not mean that God will change his views accordingly and so our message must change. No. We know they will take offence at our message. We know that. It's to be expected. Because who likes to be told that they're wrong? Who likes to be told that they need to be saved from their own sin? Jesus warned you and I. He said, they hated me. They will hate you too. For the message that you bring. You see, but at the same time, they hate the message. Sinners were drawn to the person of Jesus Christ. Didn't sinners cluster around Jesus? They did. They invited him to their parties. They wanted Jesus to be around, but they hated the message that he had for them. You see, we need to present the message of God's grace to those that come up against us. Because it is the message of God's grace presented to them that attracts them to the gospel. And yes, part of that message is there is sin. But the greater majority of that message is there is grace available to you. You know, if I can point to my dear friend Gerard who passed away, that was what hit him between the eyes. And I spoke to him about sin and he didn't like it. He actually said it in more expletive language than I do here. But you know what really got to his heart? The love of Jesus Christ. I had to tell him over and over the story about the shepherd who would go after the lost sheep. And with tears in his eyes, he'd say to me, does he love me that much? Tell it again. You see, that's what gets me. Is the love available to a lost sinner. Unbelievers don't need our judgment. People listen to me. They don't need our judgment. They are already going to get that from the Lord if they don't turn from their ways. They need the saving gospel message. I don't need to tell them homosexuality is wrong and that they are going to hell for it. That's part of the message. They need to hear about the saving gospel message that is also available to them. And that means that I must have the right attitude. When we give them that message, we are not just standing one finger in the air, glaring the eye, saying, you are going to hell. And you've seen that on street corners. People with their Bibles open. You are going to hell. Yes, that is the message. But it is not the message and the way of grace that we are to present at the same time. We are to have the right attitude. We are to have a love for the lost. Christ prayed for His enemies. Where did He pray for His enemies? While He was hanging on the cross from those nails, He was praying for those who had put Him there. Lord, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And our attitudes are never to be rude. Our attitudes towards unbelievers, when we bring them the message of the gospel, is never to be overbearing. It's never to be Bible bashing. It's never to be impersonal. 
The message of Christ's love for the lost must be seen in our gentleness. It must be seen in our humility. It must be seen in our willingness to serve them, our patience towards them, and our kindness towards them. 1 Peter 5.5 sums it up like this. He says, all of you, and you know what I'm going to say, it doesn't exclude anyone, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but He gives what? Grace to the humble. And so, when they hear the message from our mouths of love and peace available to them, they must see that same message in our eyes. They must see it in us. You see, too much damage has already been done in history under the banner of religious zeal. Too much has already been done. And when you speak to non-Christians, that is one of the first things they'll point back to. What about the Crusades? My friend Gerard said that to me. Like I was personally responsible. What about the Crusades? That's with the, those were the Christians. Religious zeal. How much damage was done under the name of Christianity? Are you and I going to be part of that? By the way we portray the gospel message? By the way we give it? Now, hear me when I say this, because these were good men I'm speaking about here. Cromwell. He was a good man. He was a believer. He was a Puritan. But, in his cause, he sometimes used the wrong methods against the Catholics. Way back in history. The slavery that happened, where Christians had slaves. What message went out to those slaves about Christians? Even one of my personal heroes, John Calvin. He was a great man of God. He had great teaching. I love the institutes of Christian religion that he wrote. But even John Calvin used the wrong methods at times. And yes, he lived in a time when people were killed for not believing what they should have believed. But their methods were sometimes wrong. He was a fallible man. And then there's this guy called Calvin. Another one. And I know his heart and his methods have been wrong too. But God uses imperfect people like us to serve Him. So what is the right attitude to rejection? Or keep it in the vernacular. Keep calm and be gracious. You all relate to that now? Keep calm and be gracious. When people come up against you, be gracious. When they come up against your point of view, be gracious. When they say things about your Christian faith and the Lord you love, be gracious and keep calm. I know my heart. I'm a bit of a son of thunder too. Let's put it in biblical language and we're getting to the end of the sermon with this passage, 2 Timothy. And I want you to turn there with me. It's really important that we all look at this passage and see it from Scripture itself. How are we to react to those who come up against us and what we believe? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. This is what it should look like in our lives. And I challenge you today, as I hope God's Word, through His Spirit, will challenge you in your attitude this morning. Is this your attitude towards others who come up against you? A servant of the Lord, if you're a believer here today, that's you. A servant of the Lord is not 
must not quarrel, but must be gentle to all, able to teach. That means able to give a reason for the faith that is within you. To be patient, and in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. And yes, that even means when you're writing away in a paper, do it in humility. May they see grace coming from your writing. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, you see, that's why we must do it, so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. We are to have an attitude of grace because God can use that attitude to save others. We are to sow seeds of grace. And so when people come up against you, kick against that gut reaction. Come over with grace. Stay calm. Be like a Lord's servant in that situation. What did Jesus do when he entered Jerusalem? He anticipated that this whole city was going to come up against him and crucify him. But Jesus was not angry. He didn't stand there on the verge as he looked down on Jerusalem and poured down damnation and hell fire like Sodom and Gomorrah. No, he didn't do that. What did he do? He wept for the city. He wept for the people of that city who would crucify him. And was there nothing that angered him? They'd shortly find out there was because he'd come down into the temple and he would grab a whip and he would whip them out of there because they had turned it into a place That was not God glorifying anymore. And so they saw the other side of this Messiah. But you see, his anger was directed at religious hypocrisy. His anger was directed at those things which blocked access to God. And there's the key. We are to go against those things which block access to God. He welcomes sinners to himself. And so, yes, write out about the legislation, but love the sinners. And when people come in here, and they still will, they will come in from all aspects of society, love them, love the sinners, but stand for the truth. Do you see the two have to come together? And we should too, in everything we do, do everything possible to to clear access to God and to love the lost as Christ first loved us. And so I want to end with this one little sentence. And listen to it this morning. You and I reflect the heart of the gospel while proclaiming the message of the gospel. Reflect the heart of the gospel while proclaiming the message of the gospel. We are there with the path, but we are to love while we do so. Let's pray. Lord, as we live in the society, we see that times are getting more evil. The laws being put there are designed not by you, Lord, but by Satan. But Lord, as we try to be relevant to our society, may they see the grace in us. May they hear the message that comes from you yourself, 
a message that we cannot water down, but may they hear and see the grace that is reflected from our lives in the way we bring across that message. Lord, may we be like Jesus Christ. Sinners loved you, but they hated your message. Lord, may sinners love us as believers because of the grace they see in us, even though they might not like the message. But Lord, may you use that message to draw them to you so that they realize that without you, They are lost for eternity. And that judgment that is there is going to come down on them. But Lord, help us as believers not to bring that judgment down on them early. May we leave that to you because that is your task. May we proclaim your message with your love, we pray. Help us to do that, Lord. And may many be drawn to Jesus Christ because of the love shown in our lives for them. Amen.